Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we'll look at the siege of Mariupol, accusations of Russia using chemical weapons, and the latest impact of the conflict on the economies of Russia and Ukraine. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, I sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's April 12th, day 48. And today, I'm joined by Vinicia Rainey, Assistant Foreign Editor, Louise Moon, our Business Features Editor, and Francis Sternley, Assistant Comment Editor. I started by asking Vinicia for the latest news from Mariupol, where fierce Ukrainian resistance against overwhelming firepower may be reaching its endgame. So what we're seeing is a continuation of what we've been seeing over the last few weeks. The situation is really desperate there. Um, But we might finally see the city actually fall in the next few days. The bombardment has continued. And what we heard yesterday was reports of a chemical attack. And this came from the leader of a pro-Russia separatist area in the Donbass, um, suggesting that maybe chemical weapons should just be used to finish the city off. Um, Lovely language. Um, But then we also had the Azov Brigade, which many of our listeners will remember is a quite controversial brigade that um, contains neo-Nazi elements, first formed um, back in 2014 when fighting first broke out in the east of Ukraine. They're some of the people who've been left the longest in Mariupol still fighting. There's sort of a hardcore battalion there, along with some others who we'll be talking about in a bit. They um, said yesterday that there had been a chemical attack in the city. It's been impossible to verify this. We haven't had any confirmation from the Ukrainian government. The British government is also looking into it. The latest reports suggest that possibly not. Um, But the Azov Brigade, the same people have said again this morning, they've shared a video um, showing some of their members suffering some sort of mild mild symptoms, including sort of swelling and struggling to breathe, looking quite ill. Uh, it's, it's quite a tricky video to verify, and it's impossible to say whether it was caused by a chemical attack. You know, they say in the video that the effects are quite mild because they were quite far from the centre of where the chemical weapons were dropped and that they can't get any closer because of the fighting. 
it's impossible for us to verify any of this kind of stuff, really. And the latest science is that that's not what's happened. But it is something that we're still looking at closely. Um, the other big story out of Mariupol is that we're starting to see some people surrender. Um, as listeners will know, there's been no food, no no water, no electricity and, and no ammunition that's been able to get in for a very long time now, you know, over a month. So the fighters that have been left there and there is also a sort of international regiment within the Ukrainian Marines um, that's been fighting there. They have been holding on for as long as they can, but we got word from a British fighter who we've been speaking to, a volunteer soldier. Um, his call name is Johnny. Um, his real name is Aidan Iceland. Um, we've done a few stories on him, um, which you'll be able to find on the Telegraph's website, about how he's been fighting. He felt it was his duty to go there and fight, but he got word out through um, intermediaries of his who, who ran, run his social media accounts that they've had to surrender. Him and his whole unit have had to surrender because they've run out of food and they've run out of ammo. And they said that they're going to surrender to the Russians um, in the hope that they'll get better treatment than if they get caught by the Chechens, for example. Um, And we don't know what's going to happen next to them. That would mean that they're a prisoner of war, technically, could be the first British prisoner of war, though there may have been others captured before that we don't know about. Um, Obviously, we've heard all the reports about what Russians do with people that they capture in the areas around Kiev that have been liberated in in the last two weeks but we don't know we don't know what will happen to these to these soldiers um but that's so that's the latest of what's happening in Mariupol so far thanks Venetia uh, Francis I don't know if you want to come in on that at all um I would just reiterate what Venetia was saying about the horrors that we've already heard snippets about in Mariupol and would point readers to a really fascinating piece in the New York Times today where uh, we've already talked about Bucha and the atrocities that appear to have been committed there. What they've done is they've spent the last few days um, looking at the bodies that were found there, left there by the Russian retreat, and have been tracing what appears to have happened to them. They've interviewed people still uh, in the area and has have, have effectively recorded their stories and their last moments and have mapped that and have obviously all of this material will we hope one day be able to be used in some sort of future um, trial of some of the participants and uh, for for war crimes. Um, But the reason this is relevant to Mariupol is of course once we hope we're able to um, see inside that city when this war is over I think we can expect horrors that are considerably worse than we have seen thus far in this conflict. Um, Already President Zelensky has pointed to the fact there may be as many as 10,000 dead in that city. That's certainly what the mayor of Mariupol believes. Um, I mean, if that is true, then, as I said yesterday on the podcast, the numbers concerned there are, I think, comparable in this duration of time, if not considerably higher um, than those suffered by um, London and other cities um, in Britain during World War II. Um, and so it's a, a terrible tragedy that is occurring right now. And I think that many of us have not fully appreciated that and woken up to that because, of course, we're not able to have access to, uh, to photographs and to um, that information. And one day when we do, I think we will perhaps wake up and realise that we have all been essentially... 
witnessing some one of the worst crimes on European soil ever committed um, and um, comparable with any of the worst atrocities committed by the Soviets in the 20th century. It's 82 years this year since the Kachin massacre, which many listeners will be familiar, was the Soviet assassination of 22,000 Polish officers and intellectuals um, in the in, in the years of the Second World War and prior to it as part of a liquidation of that class that could have threatened um, or perceived to have threatened the, the, the Soviets. It was discovered by... Um, uh, by the Nazis in when they uh, seized Poland in the war, and to this day is a stain on on uh, the Russian state that only in the years after the Soviet Union admitted that they had participated in those massacres. But the reason I think it's relevant, apart from just pointing to the scale of the horrors, is that once again we are seeing a rewriting of history taking place in uh, Russia at present on relation to the Katyn massacre, where they are now beginning to deny again that it was ever something committed by the Soviets and that in reality it was something committed by the Nazis. We were meant to have, have, have turned a page in our history, in Europe's history, where some of these these horrific crimes were, you know, uh, people were, uh, states had admitted to them and we were able to find some some solace in that and try and learn the lessons. But as with so many areas of this conflict, we seem to have gone horribly back in time. Can we just put um, Mariupol in a bit of strategic context? We have talked about this before, but if it's true that we're on the eve of the city falling to Russian forces, why is this important? What does, how, does this change, how does this change the war? So it's all part of Russia's efforts to try and create this land bridge to Crimea, which it annexed back in 2014. Um, it has been waging a relentless war on these cities in the south to try and create that land bridge from the Russian border leading down to um, Crimea Peninsula down in the south. And Mariupol is the sort of last holdout of that. Um, they do occupy territory around it. Um, so it feels almost as if it's become punitive. And we have seen suggestions of that previously that Vladimir Putin doesn't like the idea that Mariupol stood up to him back in 2014. The Russians took the city for a few months and then the Ukrainians won it back. And now he wants to, you know, wipe it off the face of the earth effectively because that land bridge is, is sort of there. They could drive around Mariupol, but of they want to be able to go right through the main road that goes through Mariupol and the sort of other cities that are part of that offensive in the south is Melitopol, which you'll have heard about, and Berdyansk as well. Um, and the idea is that's the sort of southern war front, but what we're also seeing is columns of troops and armoured vehicles and tanks coming down from the area around Kharkiv. So Izium has been taken in recent weeks. We heard about the train, the, the attack on the railway station in Kramatorsk. That's all part of this sort of pincer movement that we're seeing um, to try and seal off the Donbass area so that Russia can claim some sort of victory in this war and take a bit more, take a bit more territory. And, and that's backed up by what we're seeing, the sort of repositioning of Russian troops both within Ukraine and outside of Ukraine in Russia. We've seen a massive... Um, convoy heading on the Russian side of the border, heading towards Donbass. So they're clearly aiming to reinforce that as quickly as possible. And that that war for the Donbass is very much underway already. Thanks, Venetia. Um, before we move on to, before we bring Louise in and talk a little bit about uh, the latest impact on the Russian and Ukrainian economies, can we talk a little bit about this story 
that Putin has thrown a top spy chief into prison. I mean, we've seen a lot of fallout from the first few weeks of the war. This seems to be the in, in Russia um, in terms of repression and, and this sort of thing. So what's going on here? What happened? Francis, do you want to speak to this? Sure, David. Um, well, as you say, a very senior, uh, his, effectively his top spy chief has been, we believe, and I should say that this is um, unconfirmed, that, that what I'm about to say regarding the numbers of other, um, believe, intelligence officers who've also been thrown into prison. Um, but yes, um, he is the top spy chief in charge of um, much of the intelligence prior to uh, to the invasion, so we understand. And we hear that maybe as many more as a hun- of, of, as a hundred agents have been removed from their jobs, um, uh, and as I say, he would have been the head of the department on Ukraine. Now, I think the I've just made an allusion to the one of the worst Stalinist crimes, which was the uh, Kachin massacre. But uh, this is, I think, in some ways um, comparable philosophically, if not in terms of the numbers concerned, of the kind of purges that were very, very common in the Russian state in the Soviet era, where effectively to fail is not to, as in the West, you know, to, to, to lose one's job or to be moved on, but is essentially to be seen as a traitor to the state. And as a consequence of that, you are thrown into prison, you use your rights, and sometimes, um, indeed, you would face, uh, most commonly in the Soviet area, face execution. And what was so barbaric about this practice as well is that quite often people were forced to sign confessions um, and that their families would then, in the hope that their families would then be spared. I mean, this is truly horrific stuff. And the fact that Putin, as we've already talked previously of several weeks ago on this podcast, was uh, talking about the uh, spitting out of flies and how this conflict would would expose the traitors within Russia, that kind of uh, fierce rhetoric and purge rhetoric relating to purges really we 're starting to see evidences of evidence of that from within his own um, effectively government and administration. We already knew it was happening um, among the opposition, of course, within Russia. Um, Alexei Vilneni in, 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 is, is currently in prison, the main opposition leader. And of course, free journalism has been silenced and all of the, uh, the, the with Ukraine being used as the justification for that. But this is something, I think, different when you are essentially sending a message to your own subordinates that failure is, is, is not an option, that if you are uh, it, that if you fail, then you will face prison and and possibly worse. And again, I think this is something that that we should be sensitive to in the in the grand strategic picture, as it were. That all of these individuals who are in a sense complicit in the crimes taking place in Ukraine um, are, are essentially being forced to put up or shut up, and that will make it very very difficult to um, to really challenge Putin from within the regime. Um, This is a tried and tested strategy of remaining in power. And unfortunately, if one looks at the historical precedents, a very successful one. Yeah, just quickly to add to that, because we've seen today that um, one of the other opposition figures in Russia, and and there aren't many for the reasons that we've just heard, um, a guy called Vladimir Karamoza, who um, some of our listeners may have heard of before, has also been arrested. He was poisoned twice previously um, and survived, obviously, um, but he's now been arrested. And it's not clear exactly why, but he was on TV yesterday describing the Kremlin as a regime of murderers and saying that he had no doubt out that the Putin regime would end its war in Ukraine, but that it wouldn't be happening anytime soon. Um, 
so that's another that's another another thing to keep an eye on because as we say there aren't many opposition figures but they're they're dwindling even faster um, at the moment thanks Venetia and thanks Francis um Louise Moon, we saw a story yesterday uh, in The Telegraph that Russian consumers have slashed their spending by up to a tenth. Um, what does this tell us about Russia's economy? And, um, and is there anything else we should know? I think um, this is basically one of the first indications of the deep recession that Russia is facing. Um, so I kind of mentioned before, I'm not sure if you heard it, but that economists have been expecting a two-year recession and a surge in job losses um, due to sanctions. So that's been expected for a while. But essentially... Um, Russian consumers have been slashing spending by a tenth. Uh, so that was data that was at the start of April from Spurbank, which is Russia's largest lender, and compared to the same time last year. Um, and that comes as households are basically uh, buying things. That, um, their purchases are plunging at the fastest rate since late 2020. Um, so it's just basically a stark indication of how this is really affecting the economy and really going down in, into the households. Um, and also, so at the beginning of the war, that had increased, spending had increased um, in the first few weeks, but that in part was due to panic buying. Um, and it was quite interesting, uh, Putin's former chief economic advisor said in an interview that the number of Russians living in poverty, which is currently estimated at about 20 million, he thinks that could double or triple. So it's really just um, one of the first indications we've seen of of what's expected really in the future of the, of the Russian economy. Um, and just quickly to add as well, there was quite an interesting report yesterday that we did um, on the first Russian company to default. Um, they've actually come out today saying, insisting that they haven't defaulted and they uh, blamed the process for holding up their funds but but the, but the story i mean whether or not that that is true if they have paid off their debts but um it was russian railways which is a state-owned company um and they were ruled to have defaulted because they failed to make a payment to investors um and as i said they have insisted that that hasn't happened but that confusion and and whether or not um, it's, it's slightly unclear of, of whether they are in default. They were ruled to be in default yesterday. But that confusion is, again, kind of the latest sign that sanctions are ha- hammering the economy. They would have been the first Russian company to default. And it kind of um, reignites the debate of whether or not um, Russia itself will default on sovereign bonds. Um, scrutiny is rising um, over that. And I know that we've, we've addressed that in the podcast before. That has been a discussion topic for quite a while. Um, but, but as consumers are spending less, as companies are doing worse, the economy is faring a lot worse and therefore scrutiny is rising as to whether this will happen soon. I think Mutaz made a really interesting point on the podcast yesterday in relation to the impact of sanctions when he said, I think he was talking about Sudan, um, which he is a country that he's familiar with the history of, um, that normally when you have sanctions, as has happened with this conflict, people are quite defiant. They think that they are temporary and as a consequence that their you know, businesses will be able to reopen or that the, the value of their currency will, will eventually stabilise. Um, and then, you know, as the war goes on, that usually the resistance hardens even further until at some point there is a tipping point, and that can take months or it can take years, where people suddenly do wake up to the reality and the impact that sanctions have on a nation. And 
Of course, we don't know yet how long these sanctions will go on for. We do know that Putin has, as part of these ongoing negotiations with Ukraine, has said that any future deal will have to have the easing of sanctions as part of any arrangements that are made. I think the West will be very um, uh, opposed to doing that um, in, until the you know the Putin is whilst Putin remains in power. But even so, um, it's, I think, a a very relevant point, this, that at some point the Russian people are going to really start feeling the long-term impact of these sanctions. And whilst in the short term it may harden their resolve, in the long term, if one looks at the historical trends, there is a sort of revulsion against them at some stage. And I think this speaks to one of the great challenges, as I say, that the West and Ukraine will have in, in the coming months and years, is to what extent to try and bring... Uh, you know, Russia back into the into the fold, or perhaps out of necessity, um, if if you know, with w- Russian gas and oil, etc., will uh, the the sanctions have to be eased? It's it's a very uncomfortable question, that one, but one I think we know are being discussed at very high levels behind closed doors, both within Russia um, and within uh, the Western powers. Just to add to that, if you don't mind. Um, Francis uh, touched on oil and gas, and this has been quite a sticking point, um, I mean, through, throughout the whole war, but also now in particular, because there's there's been, I think we're going to touch on it in a bit, but the World Bank report in terms of Russia's economy and, and all these things that we've mentioned today, just to show how, how badly it is faring. But at the same time, um, Europe is essentially, you could say, essentially helping to, to stem or to, to prop up kind of the remaining... The remaining parts of, of Russia's economy. I mean, it could be faring even worse than it is, and they're always kind of cushioning the blow because they haven't sanctioned oil and gas. Um, and I think that's that's just it's 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 a key sticking point that they're that they're not going as so far as to do that because it will affect them so much. And um, the advisor that I mentioned earlier, he said in an interview with the BBC, he said that. Um, because Russia, um, sorry, because Europe is continuing to buy oil and gas, he's essentially arguing they need to reduce their reliance because they're they're helping the economy and and you know they they could be they could be having a lot more of an impact. But obviously that comes with with big uh, economic hit to themselves. Thanks, Louise. And yes, you brought up the World Bank report. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about this because it, it was looking at Russia's economy. Uh, this year, but but also Ukraine's, which I, I'd quite like us to speak about a little bit, the, the impact of this war on Ukraine. Yes, of course. So on Sunday, the World Bank came out with a report and they said, so if we start off with Russia, they said that Russia's economy, so its, it's GDP, would fall by 11.2%. Um, and that comes in the face of, obviously, as we discussed, in terms of sanctions, an exodus of capital, soaring inflation. And it's quite stark, um, a previous forecast uh, predicted the GDP was going to grow 3% this year. So it just shows how much of an impact these sanctions and the war has had on Russia. And last year, it expanded by 4.7%. So again, just shows the impact. Um, and at the same time, I mean, that, that in itself sounds bad, 11.2%. But Ukraine is predicted to collapse by 45.1%. Uh, so last month, the IMF had actually predicted that Ukraine would have a downturn of 10 to 35%. Obviously, that's quite a wide range. But 10 to 35%, and now the World Bank is saying 45%. So, I mean, as as you say, Ukraine's economy is being 
being completely ravaged essentially by by this war. Um, the World Bank. So, so those those were, I think, I think I'm right in saying that those were the median predictions. A more pessimistic scenario um, predicts a 20% decline for Russia and a 75% one for Ukraine. So that's extreme case, strong scenario. Um, so, as we've discussed, I mean, this is completely wrecking both economies and, yeah, and even worse for Ukraine. Uh, Francis, I know you had some thoughts on this as well, in particular to do with uh, Britain offering import tax relief. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, yeah, so just to pick up on what Louise was saying, I think, you know, I remember at the very start of this conflict, there was a, 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 a good line that um, somebody wrote, which was that effectively Putin had managed to destroy two countries in the space of a week. Um, and that is now, of course, being only underlined by the scale of the economic devastation, both within Russia and within Ukraine. Um, but yes, just on this point about Britain, we are uh, essentially, uh, the Prime Minister has said that he is um, removing import tax. Um, so this basically on Ukrainian goods. So basically, it will be cheaper for Ukrainian goods to be sold and purchased within the United Kingdom. And of course, it would be a small gesture because we don't import that much from Ukraine. But this will be something I think that we will begin to see as a trend across Western economies as Ukraine is essentially trying to repair the damage caused by this devastating war. Countries want to extend their hand. And one of the ways in which they can do that, aside from offering weapons and munitions, is to uh, give them economic support through encouraging free trade and other means. And I think as a general, uh, you know, assuming that there is a an end to this war that is uh, allows Ukraine to have its independence um, and um, for President, President Zelensky to remain in power, then I think we will see Ukraine really come much, much closer into the European fold. I don't necessarily mean the European Union in that, because I think that there are some issues that will still that will have to be ironed out in relation to the Ukrainian membership, although I'm sure that it will be expediated, that process. We've already seen the start of that. Um, but I think, generally speaking, Ukraine has become emblematic of a greater existential fight within Europe about freedom and about values that we thought essentially had been won in the Cold War. And as a consequence of, of this conflict has shown that that is not the case, that these values are still to be fought for and cherished. And it, in a sense, it, it gives Europe some meaning again, I think. And as a consequence of that, I think we will see Ukraine supported and um, become a much more vital component to what we see as Europe. And I think that this will have, as I say, very big ramifications because traditionally, as, as we've talked about many times on this podcast, Ukraine was seen as more part of the East than as part of the West. I don't think that one can say that now. And I think that that will have a big influence on, on, on that whole region um, in ways that perhaps yet we, c we c are not yet able to predict. Uh, talking about countries that are shifting, shifting their allegiance or at least moving closer to the West, can we talk a little bit about um, Sweden and Finland? and their moves closer to NATO. I mean, it's, it's a story that's been going on for the past few days, but I realise we haven't actually spoken it, about it here. Uh, Venetia and Francis, what's, what's going on? Um, so, yeah, obviously two countries with slightly different 
histories in terms of their relationship with Russia, but have been moving ever since the invasion broke out. There has been discussion about whether they might join NATO. And that's something that was seen as really improbable this time last year, you know, polling about whether it was important to join um, the alliance was was very low. There just wasn't support for it. It wasn't seen as an urgent issue. Russia wasn't seen as an immediate threat. Um, but all of that has changed. Um, we're now seeing Finland debate whether they should do it. Sweden is having the same sorts of discussions at very high levels. Um, you know, this is and that's quite a, a seismic sort of reordering of 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 Europe as well. It's partly to do with Russia invading Ukraine, but it's also partly to do with a sort of rebalancing of what's going on in the Baltic area. Russia has stationed a lot of troops in Belarus, which is something we've spoken about before, and that shifts the power dynamics in that part of northern Europe. It makes the Baltic states, which are quite small, feel a lot more worried, and it also opens the door for you know, more troops to potentially be posted in Kaliningrad, this Russian enclave, um, which is facing the sort of waters towards Sweden and Finland. Um, so it's all part of this sort of reshuffling of the power dynamics that we've seen in the last few years being reshuffled in real time over the last few weeks. Um, and yeah, we, we, might see, we might see NATO get a new member sometime this year, next year. We'll see. Thanks, Venetia. Um, just one more thing, one more update I think we should cover. Uh, it's in the Telegraph's live blog of the Ukraine war this morning. Um, it's a story that we've picked up. A British missile sent in secret to Ukraine appears to have shot down a Russian drone. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this story and why was it secret? Why didn't we know about this before? I'll happily pick that up. I mean, I think that it's uh, it's another example of the kind of wep- very high-level weapon support that has been offered to the Ukraine by um, by not only Britain, but, but the West more generally. And, of course, we only hear what, the government tells us we can we, we can report and 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 this is an example of where some of the weapons um, that that we are only learning about now that we have sent but also what the russians have used uh, many listeners will recall when we were speaking several weeks ago about some mysterious um, russian uh, artillery weaponry i believe it was um that uh, had never been seen before and it seemed to have the capability of jamming um, defence um, uh, weaponry, so that you know the, the missiles would 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 jam the uh, the tracking um, being used by defenders, and that would then mean that the missiles were able to land and, and score targets more successfully. Um, so again, this is what wars do: is that of course um, all great powers are developing technology in warfare all of the time. We often don't see what is going on um, in that development, and yet warfare brings it all out, and we are seeing that on both sides. Um, I think it's also just when we're talking about the British military strategy, some very interesting remarks um, by James Heapy, uh, who's the minister sort of in charge of the, in charge of the armed forces. He made some very um, um, interesting remarks, I think, about uh, the, the sort of longer term strategy for Ukraine, but also saying that effectively Ukrainian soldiers will be being flown over here um, to uh, to be trained to use some of these advanced weapons and also tanks as well, and I think he he also made a comment something we've not we we talked about at the very beginning about this uh, issue around question mark around the use of chemical warfare by by Vladimir Putin's forces. Um, he has said that if that does happen, that nothing will be off the table. 
Now, I think that's a very noteworthy remark to have made because, of course, we were very critical and the West was very critical early on, particularly with regard to America's um, and Joe Biden's strategy um, with regard to saying what America and the West wouldn't be willing to do um, and, and essentially marking where the red lines were before um, uh, but, but so that, you know, making it much easier for Putin to be able to predict and to, to essentially say, well, I can risk doing this because it would appear that there is no appetite within the West to do uh, to do to, to resist. You know, if I if I use this kind of weapon or if I use siege warfare, etc. Now it seems that there is a more deliberate policy, at least coming out of Britain, that doesn't make well, our red lines are so clear. And that makes it much more difficult when uh, for, for, for an enemy who is having to be making calculations all the time um, about the, um, the likely manoeuvres of, of, um, of, of rivals. So uh, I think, yeah, it's, uh, it's just an interesting, an interesting shift, I think. Thanks, Francis. Is there anything we haven't spoken about uh, that you think is, is, is important to mention, Louise and Venetia? Yeah, just quickly, there's some quite interesting weapons donations and sort of, you know, that kind of on the military front developments that maybe we should quickly mention. Um, Slovakia is in talks to give some Soviet-era fighter jets, MiGs, to Ukraine. Um, That would be a huge deal. The reason they're giving these Soviet-era fighter jets is because that's what Ukrainian pilots are already trained to fly. Um, And that would be a huge development for Ukraine. They've been asking for fighter jets for a long time, um, and that's the kind of heavy weaponry that they say that they need to win this next stage of the war in the Donbass. We've also seen the UK saying today that it's going to offer training to Ukrainian troops Um, for its armoured vehicles. So the Ukrainian troops will be coming here to the UK and be given training. They'll be coming in the next few days. Um, Also quite significant. And then, yeah, so that that missile that we were talking about earlier, I just wanted to give a bit more detail on that. It's a a Martlet laser-guided missile. And it's quite sort of high-tech. It can be, you know, air-to-surface, surface-to-surface, or surface-to-air, which is what it was in this case, and it took down a drone. Um, And obviously we've seen in the last few weeks it's, it's sort of system, missile system, if you will, called Star Streak taking down a Russian helicopter. So it's just an example of the sort of equipment and weaponry that we're starting to see going over into Ukraine that is clearly having a significant impact. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that in the weeks to come as the discussions around sanctions, as we were talking about earlier, to do with energy policy become trickier and trickier, a way to sort of balance that need to continue supporting Ukraine in a material way might be heavier and heavier weaponry. Just on the weaponry point, uh, I read a really interesting piece um, of commentary by Phillips O'Brien, who's the Professor of Strategic Studies at the University of St Andrews. And indeed, he's actually going to write for us um, online today. So keep an eye out for that um, on the Telegraph website. Uh, essentially, he makes some very interesting comparisons with the casualty rates suffered by in, in many famous campaigns in the 20th century and beyond, um, and those being currently experienced by the Russian forces. So essentially, his argument is that the Russian casualty rates of around 30% are comparable with some of the worst losses in the First World War and also the American Civil War, which will be very familiar for our listeners across the pond. Um, So actually, starting with the US Civil War, 
Robert E. Lee, the Confederate general, of course, on the losing side in that conflict, but still considered one of the most successful generals in that war. His troops suffered around 20% casualties on their campaigns. And as I say, he was the losing general in that war. In the Battle of the Somme in 1916, in the First World War, um, as I say, the numbers there are around 30%. So the British, French and Germans deployed around 3.5 million soldiers and lost about a, a million and a half in casualties. Um, But that battle, interestingly, lasted more than three months. So in order to get up to the 30% casualty threshold, whilst, of course, that's twice the length of time of the conflict so far. So that speaks just to the you know, extent of the losses that the Russia are currently suffering. Another interesting comparison that he makes is with the Battle of Kursk um, in 1943. Um, the reason I mention that one, I think, is because... Uh, It's been talked about in relation to the battle that we're now going to start seeing in the Donbass between traditional tanks and uh, infantry style warfare, particularly uh, tanks. Kursk was the biggest tank battle in history. And um, interestingly, in that battle, the German losses, uh, they was a defeat for the Germans, was around 22%. So again, even though that was a devastating defeat for the Germans, their casualty rate was actually lower than those currently being experienced by uh, the Russian forces. So um, this is uh, the two significant areas for this in terms of the long-term strategy for the Russians is, of course, that the first is, is that when you face losses on this scale, you almost certainly will have to um, cease operations for a period of time and recover. Britain certainly did that after the failed Somme offensive in 1916. Um, And so I think that we are perhaps seeing that regraping now before the renewed assault on the Donbass that we are um, expecting, although it may well be that that it will be a a, a longer pause will be required if those initial um, assaults are not successful. But secondly, and more concerningly, of course, it means that I think in terms of the strategy being considered by Russia's generals, that you do not want to be risking soldiers in hand-to-hand or or close quarters warfare, and it increases the likelihood of of chemical warfare perhaps being used. Um, And let's hope not, but it's a, it's a, a, a very serious concern, I think, and something that we should be sensitive to. And so I think it's right to talk about it um, because uh, it, these are the kind of calculations that will be being made when you are facing such staggeringly high casualty rates when looking back historically on defeated armies. Thanks very much, Francis. Um, so I think we've reached the end of our time. So Louise, Francis and Venetia, can I have your final thoughts, please? What should, we, what should people be looking to in the, in the days ahead? I think for in terms of business and the economy, I think any more companies defaulting um, in Russia, as this will be quite an indication of the health of the Russian economy and kind of where it where it falls in terms of the the wide predictions of um, how far its economy is going to decline, as as we spoke about earlier. So I think that'll be that'll be the key thing um, as an indication of 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 how how hit their economy is going to be. On the ground in Ukraine, I think it's all about watching what happens in Mariupol, um, how quickly it falls, what the Russians are trying to cover up about what they've done there and how soon we can get in and see what's actually been happening. And then, of course, the battle for the Donbass, which, as I said, is already underway. Uh, My final thought would just be uh, to flag, I think, that another horror of this war and any war really is it that distracts the world from other horrors that are taking place. We've talked previously about some of the other international incidents that perhaps precipitated this war, not least the um, chaotic uh, evacuation from Iraq 
um, and Afghanistan. And uh, the Taliban have recently been committing numerous executions and treating women in particularly appallingly, uh, which they had promised not to do um, when they seized power um, in Afghanistan. And I think it's just, as I say, Ukraine is, is, is very different um, in terms of its geopolitical uh, consequences. And we are very much right to be focusing on that. But as I say, it gives also a blank check to terrible regimes around the world because they know that the world is not currently watching them. And there are a lot of bad things going on that will have, you know, huge ramifications, not just in Afghanistan, but also um, the Iran nuclear deal, which I think would be being scrutinized much more closely were it not for what's going on in Ukraine. Um, and I think, you know, that this is something that we should be at least be sensitive to, that it is yet another unintended and horrific consequence of, of war. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our daily Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app and leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly with us by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and on Twitter, Sophie Coe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.